Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. The podcast where we answer your questions, provide dubious advice, and give you all the week's news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But first, John, do you have a poem for us? I do have a poem for you. God, I, was, I was thinking that we're kind of like missing a segment from the podcast where we uh, just just where I ask you how you're doing. I find out what's you know how how things are. So how are you? Oh well, uh, I was expecting a poem, and now I have a, a question being thrown at me. I'm great. Well, I, I mean, a poem will come in the fullness of time. I just I, I just wanted to know if there's anything going on with you. If you're you're up to anything? Well, mostly wh- I want to talk about myself, but I know it's polite to let you talk about yourself first. When this podcast comes out, I will be in France, um, and I will have been in France for about a week, and hopefully I'm having a good time there on a little mini vacation uh, that started out with work, but then I I stayed in France. Well, congratulations to the future you on getting to visit France. I was just in France uh, very recently as part of, uh, you know, Hank, it occurs to me that lots of people don't know that we um, are not just professional podcasters with a podcast sponsored by Shirt Tales, Shirt Tales. The 1980s uh, children's cartoon uh, that changed lives, including ours. No, uh, we are not just professional podcasters. We also have other jobs. Hank is an internet entrepreneur, uh, vlog brother, crash course, co-created uh, Lizzie Bennett Diaries, which won an Emmy, uh, SciShow, lots of things. Um, what else do you do, Hank? I can't remember. A VidCon, DFTBA Records. I make videos with you on this channel called Vlog Brothers Crash Course. I mentioned several of those things, but clearly you weren't listening to me. Um, yeah, so uh, mostly I am the tail to Hank's Comet, but I also have this other job, which is that I write books. Or I guess maybe I should say that I used to write books since I haven't written one in more than three years. Uh, and, and one of the books uh, that I wrote, Paper Towns, is being turned into a movie that comes out in a few weeks. And so I have been traveling constantly. So I actually spent 22 hours uh, in Paris, Hank. Um, I left the hotel precisely twice. Um, 
uh, mostly, uh, I was I was in Europe. I was in Europe for five days. Um, I spent almost all of my time in hotel basements, which were which are lovely. I mean, some of the loveliest hotel basements that Europe has to offer. Um, doing uh, press junket stuff, but I did leave the hotel twice in Paris. Once to visit the dentist because no no visit to Paris is complete without a dental uh, appointment, and then once to uh, do a uh, signing that was supposed to be at a bookstore, but turned out to be just sort of. Um, in a large public uh, square. Uh, but from what I could gather, uh, Paris is lovely. It has some of the very best hotel basements um, that you can find in all of Europe. So uh, enjoy your time in France. That's what I'm saying. And can I get can I get to the uh, poet poem part of the day? Yeah, you, you can tell us a poem now. It sounds that sounds really exciting. Uh, and and I look forward to your new blog hotelbasementreviews.com. Oh my God, there's some great ones. Um, which reminds me by the way that uh, Dear Hank and John is sponsored. By Paper Towns. Paper Towns, the new movie coming out July 24th in the U.S. and uh, other times elsewhere in the world. This is a uh, poem that by uh, Walt Whitman. It's uh, designed to make Hank angry, and it's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Eh, you know, that didn't make me angry. Uh, I just think that Walt Whitman could uh, enjoy both of those things. In in different ways. Those are both wonderful things. I like listening to learned astronomers myself and looking at the stars in the mystical mists or whatever he said it was. Well, I think it's the I think it's the debate between uh, whether there's uh, value to uh, mystical experiences and in, and whether uh, science can damage that value. I, this is a poem where I disagree with Walt Whitman. He has a few of those um, because I do believe that uh, science only improves our sort of like. Uh, mystical relationship with the stars. I mean, the more I know about the stars, the more uh, kind of beautiful and massive and overwhelming they become. And that's very close to uh, the feeling of the mysterium tremendum, uh, you know, that that fear and awe um, and overwhelm overwhelmedness that accompanies kind of experiences with uh, with the divine or with the radically other or whatever. Um, But I still love the poem. It's a funny thing about a funny thing about poems, Hank. Uh, Sometimes I disagree with with the argument of a poem, but I find its language and uh, but I find its language and rhythm so compelling that I, I can't uh, I can't help but like it. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, except for the part, except for the part where I don't really get poetry because it. Well, I I actually I like it a lot more when you're reading it to me. I have a hard time reading poetry because it doesn't have the normal line breaks and it's taken me long enough to be able to read words the way that they're normally presented that when they're presented differently I have a very hard time with reading comprehension and I just completely lose track of what's going on so I think that all poetry should be read to me by someone but preferably John Green if that's an option can we get to the questions? Yes. Yes, of course, Hank. Uh, Liv asks, uh, Dear John and Hank, are you worried about the disappearance of the bees? And do you know of anything people can do to help save the bees? This is obviously more of a Hank question than a John question, but I just want to jump in real quickly here and say, Liv, um, as far as I can tell from my backyard, the bee situation is, uh, 
I'm not concerned about the bee situation in my backyard. Is this a moment, Hank, where uh, maybe anecdote is uh, not the uh, singular <laughs> of uh, data, and that sometimes uh, just because you see bees doesn't mean there isn't a larger bee issue? There's a larger bee issue. There is definitely a larger bee issue. The, the bee issue that we're having is mostly uh, an economic sort of commercial bee issue. So there are bees all across America that uh, are, are driven around to crops, and they are planted outside of the crops during the pollination season and then uh, and then brought to new crops when it's time to pollinate those crops. And the bee farmers who do this uh, are paid to do it. And then they, at the end of the year, also have honey that they can sell. Um, and uh, and, and it, is a, it is a job that people have. It's not uh, so much a wild bee problem. It is, it's more of a commercial bee problem. And it is a, a huge problem because commercial bees, in addition to providing jobs for those lovely beekeepers uh, and honey for all of us, also uh, produce, uh, you know, all of the crops by pollinating them. And crops that don't get pollinated do not turn into food. And that's bad. Uh, and they do not turn into seed for next year's harvest, and that's bad as well. Um, and colony collapse disorder is basically a uh, uh, a huge, widespread, unknown phenomenon in which the beehive just suddenly dies, and uh, and that is happening to a huge percentage of commercial beehives. And the reasons for this are not well known, though they are being increasingly well studied and likely have something to do with sort of a combination cocktail of pesticides that uh, should not should not and are not being sprayed on uh, the crops that bees are currently pollinating, but may be being sprayed on nearby crops or may just be still on those crops after uh, after longer than we thought they were sticking around. And uh, the way that all of these things are combining, maybe, this is still, you know, like being studied, uh, is basically lowering the immune system of the hive as a whole and allowing for outside pathogens to get in. And, uh, and, and that, you know, the, the pesticides aren't what's killing the bees. It's just sort of a general lowering of the health of the bees that then allows for pathogens to kill the bees. This is uh, a problem, uh, but the good news is that it is an economic problem, and, and, and capitalism is good at solving those problems because it says, oh, God, we need to continue selling our crops and having our bees, so, uh, we need, like, so research is easy to fund studying colony collapse disorder, which is why there is lots of research being done on it. The uh, fingers crossed is that it will get figured out and we will uh, we will modify or cease our uh, the use of certain pesticides and that will allow for bees to uh, not collapse in their colonies and that is a thumbs up. Um, the the uh, you know the the feeling that uh, bees in general are in trouble is not really what's happening. It's more of a humans are in trouble situation. And uh, we're okay at solving those because we like being us and we like selling things to each other. Hank, one of the things I think about a lot is the, uh, the this new word that's emerged in the last few decades, the an- Anthropocene, Anthropocene. I don't even know how to say it for sure. You know what word I'm referring to, though? Yeah, I think Anthropocene. Yeah, the Anthropocene, the idea that we're living in this new geological age where uh, suddenly one species, specifically humans, is having uh, an outsized impact on kind of every facet of life on Earth. Uh, and we're still getting used to... Um, this power that we've suddenly had since uh, the Industrial Revolution to uh, make or break Earth. Um, 
It freaks me out to think about, but we do need to start thinking about it. And I think when we live in denial of the fact that we're living in this new geological age when humans can make or break lots of different things on Earth, choosing which species survive, choosing uh, what the carbon levels uh, of the planet are, etc., yeah, when we, when we kind of put our heads in the sand and just pretend that we don't have that power, I think it's uh, very dangerous indeed. Indeed. Um, the interesting thing about the Anthropocene is that uh, it is often stated as the, uh, the age in which humans are the dominant power. But in fact, what it is more like is it is an age in which uh, future geologists would be able to tell a, a sharp difference in things like climate and species diversity uh, in the geological record and be able to say, like, this is marks a new beginning of something new. We are the cause of that new beginning, but the Anthropocene will continue to exist for theoretically, uh, a very long time. And that that age may not have humans as its dominating factor for that whole time. It may just be that humans were the thing that changed, like that created that defining moment. And then over time, it was, you know, the Anthropocene continued to exist. But either one, humans stopped existing, and the Anthropocene would continue because future geologists would look at it and say this age continues and, and species diversity did not come back and carbon levels did not decrease. Uh, in fact, even without people, carbon levels will probably continue to increase because as things get warmer, c- carbon dioxide production increases. Um, it's a feedback loop. It's bad. Uh and or it could be that we will have uh, less of an effect, but we will continue to see the uh, the those those effects uh, continue, despite the fact that we uh, are having less of an impact on the Earth in the future through hopefully technology and intelligence. But uh, but the the changes that we have made will continue. They are they are not something that we can turn back the clock on. Yeah, this is a great comedy podcast. We've got another question, Hank. Um, this one's from uh, Samantha. Uh, she writes, Dear John and Hank, would you rather know what happens after you die or know everyone's secrets? I would not maybe like to know either of those things. Uh, well, yeah, no, obviously, in a perfect world, you wouldn't know either of those things. <laughs> oh, I completely I see. agree with you. I have uh, yeah. no desire to know what happens after I die, and I have no desire to, desire to know everyone's secrets. But I do uh, have a preference, and I think that's what the question is. What is your preference if you were forced... Uh, to choose between the two, what would you choose? And for me, that's easy. I would want to know everyone's secrets. I think that this question is, in fact, uh, would you, like those are both good things. And uh, phrased in, in that way, I think some people would like to know both of those things. But maybe not. We are just uh, old, stodgy curmudgeons, um, and, and both of those things sound awful. But to, mo- to many people, that might sound sound lovely to know what happens after you die or yeah i know i think i yeah i find your philosophical ramblings interesting but again samantha's question is is a value free would you rather right okay know what happens after you die or know everybody's secrets and to me that's a that that yes i would rather know what happens after i die because knowing everybody's secrets would be no! cr- crushing and awful no 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 knowing everyone's secrets and it would completely would far... it would completely remove my ability to be a human in the world no uh, I, I, first off 
knowing everyone's secrets would be incredibly helpful and useful in terms of navigating the world, and you would quickly become a billionaire, and then you would be able to do something about malaria. So it's a clear win to know everyone's secrets. You just uh, exploit and abuse other people's secrets to get billions and billions of dollars, which you then uh, use to fight global poverty. Obvious. Um for instance, I could probably use knowing everyone's secrets just to bet on, uh, you know, like to bet on future sporting events or whatever, because I would know who's secretly injured. Um, <laughs> versus knowing what happens after I die, that's going to ruin the rest of my life, because I'm just going to be too too focused on it. I'm going to be thinking about it too much. What I want to be thinking about is what is happening now while I'm alive that I can do to abuse other people's secrets to become a billionaire who then cures cholera. Ah, I, uh, yeah, I think that I would be very little affected by knowing what happens after I die. Well, but you also think you do know what happens after you die. I do think I know what happens after you die. You're right. So I think that might be slightly uh, biasing you here on the question. Um, anyway, long story short, listeners... Try to find out everyone's secrets. Um, what's next, Hank? We have a question from Loyal. Loyal says, Dear Hank and John, I'm going to college soon, so I have a lot of choices to make. Not only must I decide what to study, but I'm also toying with the decision to start going by a nickname. I really do like my name, but I hate introducing myself because my name is also an adjective and people think I'm describing myself, plus I'm socially awkward. And even though Loyal is a boy's name, I'm a girl and etc. Uh, beyond that, I've started to question if changing what people call me will change me as a person. So my question is this, how much does a person's name shape their identity, and do you think I should start going by a nickname in college? I have always gone by a nickname. My name is William Henry Green, and they call me Hank. My parents called me Hank from the day I was born, which is a fate that I would never suggest a parent bestow upon their child because it results in the bank often saying, this check is not for you, and me saying, oh, please, please, please give me my money. But I think that Loyal's question is very interesting, uh, specifically the... First off, can we just pause and note that Loyal has a fantastic name. Yes. And that, in my opinion, it's not a boy's name or a girl's name. It's just a great name. Correct. Top-notch name. So, I mean, first, shout out to your parents, Loyal. Uh, or whoever named you, because that's that's some good naming right there. Um, I, I, I have a lot of uh, background in the field of choosing your own nickname because I tried to do it throughout middle school. I don't know if you know this about me, Hank. No. Yeah, so I, cho- I, I, I wanted a nickname, uh, but nobody would give me a nickname because like nobody uh, was even kind of aware of my existence. <laughs> um, so, so they didn't know my, me by my name or by my nickname. Um, so my nicknames only existed in my head. But in, in uh, sixth grade, I tried to get this nickname going, Shrimp. I really wanted pe- people to call me the Shrimp um, or just Shrimp uh, because, you know, I was a smaller person and uh, it was something of a, of a derogatory nickname, but it was at least a nickname, you know, like at least then I would be a, a nicknamed person instead of just uh, a kind of non-existent person. So I really tried hard to establish this identity of shrimp. I, I would I would always, I would ask people to call me shrimp. I would behave in ways that I thought were shrimp-like. By the way, I do, I do like shrimp. Um, I think they're fantastic <laughs> animals. Are I'm they just, animals? Yes, they're, oh my God, are Point they animals? Uh, I, I just love the idea of watching middle school John uh, per, like act in shrimp-like ways. Whatever that means, I'm picturing yeah, well, it and it's great. I'll tell you, Hank, as you can probably imagine, it was not a stretch uh, to be shrimp-like. I mean, I wasn't trying to act like the animal shrimp. I was trying to act like the uh, the slang word shrimp, which was kind of slang for a, a person who was maybe uh, weaker 
and a little bit uh, less masculine and etc. So it wasn't that much of a stretch for me. And then uh, when I was in high school, I, I again, I desperately wanted a nickname and I never got one until uh, the last couple years of high school. And uh, I really loved having a nickname. And in some ways, I, I miss it. Like I, I loved being known uh, for something other than my given name. And I've always been fascinated in my fiction by the... Uh, the relationship between like given identities and chosen identities, like a lot of my characters have nicknames, um, but also there, you know, generally I'm fascinated by the way that uh, in in adolescence and the first years of adulthood we're trying to find ourselves, and part of that is like finding a name for ourselves. Uh, so in high school, I was called Cuffs, K-U-F-F-S, because one time I said that Christian Slater, uh, who was an actor, uh, never made a bad film. And it turned out that he had been in a, uh, a cop buddy comedy named Cuffs, in which his buddy was a, uh, was a police dog named <laughs> Cuffs with a K. Um, and I really enjoyed being called Cuffs, even though it was like making fun of this, you know, stupid thing that I'd said. So anyway, Loyal, I think it's totally cool to have a nickname. Like, I think it's cool. Uh, I think you have a great name as it is. But I also think that uh, if you want to have a, a chosen identity as well as your given identity, then that's uh, wonderful. We are the things uh, that we're given. We are many of the things that we're born with. But we also get to choose a lot about what we are. So uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's awesome. Go for it. Uh, Hank, do you have any nickname suggestions for Loyal? Um, no. I think that it's a. I think it's difficult to give yourself a nickname because it's always going to be awkward to be to to like introduce yourself as something that you're not in, used to introducing yourself as, and like. I don't think so. I could totally do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you're John Green, and you're very confident and an adult. Um, so there's no, 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 no. Like, just I could have done it on my freshman in my freshman year of college. Like, somebody walks up to me, they ask me what my name is. Instead of saying John, I say, I don't know. I'm trying, struggling to think of a nickname for myself. You got anything? Cuffs. I say, oh, yeah, my name is Cuffs. Cuffs Green. Good to meet you. Um, actually, you're right. That would have been difficult just because Cuffs was such a specific nickname. Yeah. But if it had been a nickname uh, like, I don't know, uh, Daisy Pants and people were like, I, I'd just been like, oh, my name's Daisy Pants Green. People would, I, I think people would have accepted that over time. Yeah, no, I think they'll accept it. I just think it's, it, it, it would be difficult for me to do personally. I, the, the thing I want to say to Loyal is that it is actually really valuable to have a weird name. Um, like there's some, like as a Hank, there's something nice about having a name that's pretty unusual and like people remember my name, which is good. Uh, people do not remember like Catherine's name, for example, because it's normal er, and, uh, and people I think feel like remember me more and being remembered is advantageous, uh, in, in general in life. So I think that there's I think there's a lot good about loyal, and in fact, it, it a little bit sounds like it already is a nickname, um, and that might be part of what makes it awkward uh, to introduce yourself is that people think that you're giving them uh, a nickname or a you know a uh, you know something that you have chosen for yourself, and 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 you feel weird about that. But I think that uh, that like comfort in one's identity is one of the greatest. Uh, greatest things that we can achieve as people, and it is very difficult to achieve. So whatever you can do to achieve it is worth attempting. So Hank, uh, ultimately what you're suggesting is that loyal remain loyal to loyal. Oh, dang. The nice thing about when you talk for like three minutes in a row is that I get to think of puns. Ah, yes, that's, that is really how puns happen. You just have to let a friend monologue for long enough. 
We've got another question. This one is from Emma. Emma says, Dear Hank and John, there are a lot of accredited colleges online. Lots of these places let you get college credit for taking tests like AP or CLEP exams. I'll be a high school senior next year. I've been homeschooled since kindergarten, so I'm used to being self-taught. If I can get a college degree using one of these resources, along with things like Crash Course, sponsor of today's episode of Dear Hank and John for uh, test prep, why don't I... Why should I go to a brick-and-mortar school? Is the real-life experience worth it? Well, I think that there is a real value to uh, in-classroom education. I think that there is a value to person-to-person physical interaction. Um, And I know that that sounds like a double entendre. And it is. This is a comedy podcast. Ba-dum-chuck. Um, But I do. I think that there's something valuable about uh, classroom experiences, about uh, IRL classroom um, interactions, and about IRL experiences with really, really uh, excellent professors. Um, That said, uh, there's also lots of other uh, things that are valuable about college that you can get uh, online. Um, So I, uh, I, you know, when Hank and I were designing Crash Course, we we imagined it as an educational material that didn't try to replace classrooms as opposed to everything else that was being done, which which sort of was trying to replace classrooms. Um, because I, I think we both really believe in the classroom experience and, and classroom education and in the power of, uh, of teachers. Um, that said, I think that there are lots of values to online education. And, and even if, for, uh, for me at least, it's not... Uh, as complete an educational experience, it is still very much uh, a good and valuable educational experience. So that is my way out of answering your question. I also, this probably is just in my mind because we were just talking about identity, but I think that college is a great time to sort of come to better understand yourself. Uh, and and uh, that is most effectively done by uh, interacting a lot with peers and being able to have these intense years of, uh, of peer interaction and, fr- and friend interaction. And there are certainly other ways to find that as well. But um, for a lot of people, um, you know, higher education is really the time when you get to hang out with people who are adults, but who are not busy or like stuck with big other life things like, you know, marriage and kids and jobs and stuff. So it's, uh, you know, those those relationships are extremely valuable in my life, and I, I know that they are in a lot of other people's lives. Uh, not just uh, not just then, they were very valuable then, but they continue to be valuable now. So there's good stuff about college. There's good stuff about having four years or so where you, uh, you know, you are really concentrating on personal growth, not just academically, but also, you know, all the rest of the ways. Plus, it's usually where you meet your uh, college girlfriend who uh, will later crush your soul. So... That's not without value. That's John's experience. I got married to mine. Well, I mean, maybe she's just going to crush your soul later then. All relationships end, Hank, either in breakup, divorce, or death. <laughs> oh, oh well. <laughs> God, I love this comedy podcast. Um, why on earth did you make this a comedy podcast? <laughs> all, of our, all of our negative reviews in the iTunes store are like perfectly enjoyable, but not particularly funny. Anyway, I don't mean to focus on the negative, but it's also the only thing that I know how to focus on. <laughs> See? That was a great joke, John. Thanks, buddy. Uh, so we've got a question from Josiah. He writes, Dear John and Hank, when 3D printers become widely accessible, what will be the first simple object you will print and why? 
Uh, Smurf. Maybe something, maybe... Oh, a Smurf? I, well, you can get Smurfs. Maybe an action figure... But Hank, why like, would you print a Smurf when you could like, print uh, a Shirt Tail? Shirt Tail's the 1980s children's television program that sponsored today's episode of Dear John and Hank. What was I thinking? You're absolutely right. No, I, I think I might print a Snork. Oh, Even God, I, had, I, I have such fond memories of the Snorks. In fact, when I was thinking of that Shirt Tails joke, I was trying to think of the Snorks. It's funny because Henry watches a show, uh, Octonauts, that is uh, today's Snorks. Mm. Like, it's, it, he will remember it the way I remember the Snorks. But I really remember the Snorks as the, the first and in some ways most important narrative experience I've ever had. That's really weird. That I think for me that was a show called Cities of Gold, which was not popular and not on for a long time, but I was really obsessed with it. I'd get up every morning at like 7 in the morning on Saturdays to watch it, and I had a huge crush on the cartoon girl. Well, I, I think uh, Josiah's question has been answered, but not in the way any of us expected. <laughs> no, you didn't answer it. Do you want a snork as well? Um, No, I don't think I would print a snork. I think the first simple object that I would print um, would probably be a uh, like a mechanical hand that could sign my name for me, because... That's something I spend a lot of my leisure time doing. That might not be qualifying as simple. <laughs> what about an Xbox controller? Because mine is always breaking. Is that simple? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course, I would. I would. Uh, my my first 3D printing project uh, would be a bobblehead version of Hank. I'm no dummy. I just want a bobblehead Hank in my life. I have a bobblehead you in my life already. I'm looking at him right now. He looks a little weird because he... You have a bobblehead Hank or a bobblehead John? Yeah, yeah, bobble John over there. He looks a little weird because his head fell off once and now it doesn't quite rest correctly. So your chin sort of like leans on on your like the, your right shoulder kind of. And it, yeah. it's like, you okay there, buddy? And he's like, ah, long night. Yeah, my other big issue with the uh, bobblehead Johns, which I think were produced in 2008 or 2009, is that... Um, uh, I'm a little concerned that, that Bobble John looks significantly younger and thinner than current John, and it hurts my feelings sometimes to look at look at my bobblehead self, which I'm doing right now. I'm just like, who's that handsome, young, large-headed human? Yeah, that's a norm. That's that's. I used you, to be that guy. You've gotta you gotta be okay with the skin that you're in, John. Oh man, that's good. That's that's good. Dubious advice, Hank. Um. <laughs> Uh, We've got another question. This one is from Leah. She writes, Dear John and Hank, recently my grandma died. Uh, She's been with me my entire life, and I've always thought of her as a second mother. It's only been a week, but I'm doing okay. I don't think I'm as sad as I should be. It was really hard the first few days, and whenever I think about her, I feel sad, but generally I'm fine. Does this mean that I'm heartless? Am I a bad person for not being completely devastated for longer than a couple days about the death of someone I loved so much? This has been constantly on my mind. And I would really appreciate an answer. This sounds like a John Green question to me. Leah, you are fine. Uh, there are lots of ways to grieve, and um, there are lots of kinds of grief. And uh, judging your grief or other people's uh, does not do you any good. You are not heartless. Um, if you were heartless, you would have already. You would already know. Um, it's it's perfectly possible that um, your grandmother lived a long and full and rich life, and um, that you feel very grateful to have had the time with her that you had, and that um, that you've integrated uh, the sadness that you feel about her death into your life, and um, that it's part of your life, but not a consuming part, and that's not unhealthy. You're okay, I promise. I, I wasn't that sad when my grandma died. 
and uh, I was very close to her as well. So, yeah. Does that make me sound heartless, Hank? Now I'm concerned. No. Now I'm feeling exactly what Leah felt. Nope. You do not sound heartless, and I thought your answer was very good. I think a lot of times we like to judge our grief or other people's grief, but... um, yeah, your grief is yours, and it's okay. It really is. Um, it's also okay if in three months you find yourself suddenly extremely sad about that loss. Like, uh, one of the difficult things that I go through a lot is, like, judging my own feelings and making my life worse by judging them. So I'll be like, I'm sad, and also I'm angry at myself for being sad, and also I'm angry at myself for being angry about being sad, and then uh, then I'm pretty far away from where I should be, <laughs> which is I'm sad, and yeah, uh, yeah. that happens sometimes. Yeah. Great answer, John. Not as good as your answer about the bees, which was full of information that I did not know. Uh, can I tell you a funny story about bees, Hank? You want to tell me a story about bees? If you don't mind. Do you have a second? I do. So uh, my son uh, is in preschool, and uh, I got an email uh, a few weeks back, uh, and, and in all capital letters, the subject line of the email was the bee incident. Um <laughs> And then the email itself was like, the first, the first sentence was, uh, I just want to reassure all parents that our uh, students and heroic teachers are all fine. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell has happened? And it turns out that two students and three heroic teachers were stung by a nest of ground bees um, in the playground on the campus of the school itself. But to read this, uh, to read this email, you would have thought that uh, there had been a catastrophe uh, on the scale of the Lusitania <laughs> sinking. That, like, not not since the Titanic itself has humanity struggled with such a catastrophe. Um, and then the last sentence of the email was, "I would again like to thank all of our heroic teachers." Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, that's life in the contemporary American preschool these days. That's just that's just good management. She's making everybody feel good. The bee incident. This question is from Bailey. Bailey asks, Dear Hank and John, if given the choice, would you rather know virtually nothing but be incredibly happy? Or would you rather know everything but be incredibly miserable? Oh, Bailey. We seem to like uh, answering these uh, hypothetical questions, Hank. Uh, I've I, I've never taken a ton of value in hypothetical questions. I'm not sure how our podcast became the hypothetical question podcast, but um, I'll answer this question. Um, this is a uh, you know, it's a bit of a Faustian dilemma, right? Like uh, uh, there's the character, not just in in uh, Goethe's Faust or. Uh, or Dr. Faustus, uh, or anything, but also in, like, The Little Mermaid. There's always a character in a Faustian dilemma who makes a deal with the devil in exchange for knowledge, and then, of course, the deal with the devil comes uh, comes full circle, and, uh, you know, as a result of your knowledge, you have to suffer uh, some terrible fate, possibly including uh, hellfire. And, um, you know, and then on the other hand, you've got uh, the great examples of the sort of, like, happy... Uh, happy but uh, ignorant people of, um, I don't know, say uh, John Barnes's novel Lost in Space. You can take a drug uh, that makes you increasingly happy as you get, uh, as, as you know less and less, you become happier and happier. Um, I would, uh, I don't know, Hank, what would you rather do? Um, I would rather know everything but be incredibly miserable because then other people could be happy because of my knowledge that it everything is a lot of things. And I think you probably would be incredibly miserable if you knew everything. But if you knew everything, 
then you could make a lot of people's lives better. And that would be an okay trade-off. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because you could probably cure cancer if you knew everything. Yeah. Yep, you could. Yeah, I mean, knowing everything would be so incredibly valuable, not just to the human species, but to the universe as a whole, to like the idea of life, that you would almost be a bad person not to take that choice, you know, not to make that sacrifice. On the other hand... The one question is, if you are incredibly miserable, are you able to help anyone at all because of your incredible misery? Or or do you become Dr. Manhattan and you're just like, I'm incredibly miserable and I understand how to make people happier, but why even bother? Mm, That's a great question, because if you're so miserable, yep. Yeah, on the other hand, I don't think that uh, being happy is particularly the point of being alive. Um, right, yeah. I remember I was I was dating a girl once. I don't know why this is the ex-girlfriend's uh, episode of uh, Dear John and Hank, but uh, I was dating a girl once, and uh, she was talking to me about how, how I was I was very unhappy and, and, and uh, you know, I should be more happy. And I realized in the conversation that I just, I don't value happiness particularly highly. I value uh, productivity and connectiveness and attentiveness. Um, and I certainly value, um, you know, love and loving relationships and everything. But I don't know that I really seek happiness as such. Maybe I should. Maybe I've been underrating happiness this whole time. Now I'm having an existential crisis in the middle of a comedy podcast. That's not unusual here at Dear Hank and John. I value happiness fairly highly myself. I think that it is a lot of the point of life, and I think that uh, it it guides you in good ways. Right. What is happiness, really? Well, Um, now I'm starting to think that not only have I been undervaluing happiness all of this time, but that in the last like five or so years, I've secretly been valuing happiness more than I thought, which is maybe part of the reason why I've been doing more work that I enjoy and generally feeling better about being alive. Um, (laughs) Now I'm thinking that I've been underappreciating happiness, but I've also, I've been secretly appreciating happiness it's getting too meta, Hank. We've got to go to another question. I feel like maybe dear dear Hank and John has become really good talk therapy for you. It is becoming good talk therapy for me. Could we talk about how I was bullied in middle school? <laughs> That's the number one subject of my therapy sessions. Um, <laughs> also, uh, actually, Hank, while dear John and Hank is uh, becoming a therapy session for me, um, I want to share with you this question from Julia that is of great personal interest to me. Um, Dear John and Hank, ever since I was uh, seven or eight, I've had a couple strange habits. I talk to myself, flare my nostrils, and sometimes bulge out my eyes, uh, not all at once, without even realizing what I'm doing. Um, I've noticed people being uh, really creeped out by it and expressing concern for my mental health because of it as well. I pretend I don't care, but I I do. It's annoying, and it's something I really hate about myself. I will soon uh, start my junior year of high school, which means I will soon start the college-looking application process, and I don't want to have these really creepy things sort of hanging over me for the rest of my life. Any advice on how to stop? Well, uh, Julia, this is a question that I I can relate to, uh, maybe in a way that isn't going to be helpful to you. But first, I want to say that uh, Dear John and Hank is a podcast full of dubious advice, uh, and that if you want actual good advice, uh, you should definitely talk to a health professional, uh, in this case, a mental health professional, which I would probably recommend anyway, uh, just because this seems to be something that's really upsetting to you and really difficult for you uh, to deal with. When I was in uh, high school and and before that and well after that, um, I had 
had these uh, these these compulsions, I guess. Uh, I have OCD, and uh, one of them was actually talking to myself. Like I needed to talk to myself very quietly and and in a way that I, I think ultimately wasn't that distracting to people around me. But I did need to do it sometimes. Um, uh, I don't know if that's what uh, similar to what you're going through. I don't know if these feel like uh, things that you have to do. I don't know if they're tics or compulsions or uh, just habits. Um, and it's impossible for, for me to know. Um, but I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, A, I'm sorry that, that you know, you feel so uncomfortable uh, with these, with these parts of your life. And B, it's really, really difficult, uh, to know what's going on when you're kind of stuck inside of your own head. And that's why I think it is really useful, uh, to talk to someone, uh, for whom this is an area of expertise. Yeah. And, uh, if it annoys you, that is the main thing to be concerned about. If you are perceiving the annoyance of other people, you may be perceiving their feelings incorrectly. And oftentimes, you know, I have friends who have weird, fun habits, and I just think of that as how they are, not... This episode of Dear Hang Jones brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it. So it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. As, uh, as something that that is, you know, annoying about them. So... Um, All right, uh, so we're about to head into the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, but first, uh, we have a correction from a couple podcasts ago. One of our sponsors was the Orlando Solar Bears, which I referred to as a defunct international hockey league team from the 1990s. This was, in fact, a true statement because the international hockey league team, the Orlando Solar Bears, does no longer exist, but... Uh, and the, part of the reason for that is that the International Hockey League does no longer exist. But there is an American Hockey League team that uh, started in 2012 called the Orlando Solar Bears that took over the legacy of the IHL's Orlando Solar Bears. And they do exist. The Solar Bears are a current team and they play at the TD Waterhouse Center or whatever the arena in Orlando is now called. Uh, I have not lived there in a while. And you can go watch them. They have a, 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 an attendance of roughly 6,000 people per game. So there are seats available. Uh, the Orlando Solar Bears are a real thing. 
They just weren't for about a decade. Did they really sponsor our podcast, or was that part was that part not? Uh, not no, they did not, not actually give us any money. No one gives us money. Did they sponsor our correction? No, a a person on Twitter told me this. Ah, oh, that's disappointing. Uh, thanks to the Orlando Solar Bears, however, for re-existing. Uh, they, they are one of the great sporting memories of my childhood. Speaking of great sporting memories, uh, let's talk about the news from AFC Wimbledon this week. Hank, I mean, as always, it's an incredibly exciting week for AFC Wimbledon. Uh, they just drew uh, their their first round Capital One Cup tie. The Capital One Cup is a competition in which all the teams in the football league play each other. Um, so in the first round, AFC Wimbledon will be playing Cardiff City. It's a fascinating uh, matchup for Wimbledon for a couple reasons. First off, uh, our manager, Neil Ardley, used to play for Cardiff, also used to play for Wimbledon. Um, and he began his coaching career there. But also, uh, Cardiff City is a, is a great, more recent example of the, the same uh, process through which AFC Wimbledon uh, kind of came to exist. So, Hank, as you know, um, there was a team that played in Wimbledon for 120 years called Wimbledon FC uh, that was moved by... I, I try to be as objective as I can here and not biased, but it was moved by uh, greedy... Uh, actively evil owners uh, to Milton Keynes, where it became the 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 filthy pond scum currently known as MK Dons, and um, that left the community of Wimbledon without a football club. So they formed their own football club, uh, which is entirely owned by its fans, and worked their way up from the ninth tier of English football all the way back into the football league, back into being a full time professional team. Uh, so so that there is now again full time professional football um, uh, for that community uh, to to support and this and and this is evidence to me that like uh, football clubs are not ultimately uh, you know businesses owned by people they are ultimately communities uh, Cardiff City has gone through some some of this as well because uh, they were bought by a guy named Vincent Tan who unfortunately for him uh, looks like a 1970s bond villain but also uh, has been acting like a 1970s bond villain uh, he changed the their Cardiff has traditionally been known as the Bluebirds, and he changed the uh, the uniform color to red um, from blue and started uh, uh, trying to affiliate them with dragons instead of with Bluebirds. And um, uh, Cardiff City fans started to boycott games, and they would sing... Uh, uh, where Cardiff City will always be blue, and they would only wear their old blue uniforms to uh, to games, and they refused to buy the new red jerseys. And eventually, uh, the owner of Cardiff City capitulated, and this will be the first uh, season opener uh, game in, in several years in which Cardiff City will be playing in blue. So uh, congratulations to Cardiff and their supporters um, on uh, getting to play uh, in blue and getting to uh, be uh, the club that they have historically been and saying no uh, to their owner. Um, but I hope that you get crushed by the mighty machine that is AFC Wimbledon on August 11th. That was some really fascinating news from AFC Wimbledon, John. I am riveted to my seat. I only wish there I can't tell if you're kidding. More. But we have to get on to the Mars uh, news. Well, but we have more. to but um, we have to but there, thanks for mentioning it. There is more. Um <laughs> Callum Kennedy, uh, AFC Wimbledon's left back, uh, has signed a new contract uh, after a recent return to form. He's, you know, he had a difficult second half of the season, but but I, I he's showing a lot of promise. He's still a young player. 
Callum Kennedy, he's going to be an AFC Wimbledon uh, player again next season. I'm sorry, was there news from Mars? But we have to get on to the Mars news. Thank you for your AFC Wimbledon news, John. Uh, Six scientists who were taking part in an eight-month-long Mars simulation mission have been released and are now part of human society again. They spent eight months um, in a dome together, a very small area with very limited privacy and, and... Every time they went out of the dome to do science on the uh, slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, they had to wear spacesuits. Upon emerging from the dome, they said the things that they missed the most were their families, peaches, and the feeling of wind, which they did not experience for eight months, which I can imagine is somewhat upsetting. But they uh, they were eight people, or six people, selected for uh, for their, their temperament um, and their scientific knowledge uh, to be uh, a good team and to be able to spend eight months together and not uh, go nuts. And, uh, and they succeeded. And we now know that that is possible. Now they're going to do it again, uh, and uh, this time for 12 months, I believe, uh, where, where they will have people... Uh, basically participating in human experiments to see uh, how people handle living together in close quarters, uh, being able to shower for only uh, six minutes a week uh, and and not 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 go nuts and, and still be able to do interesting science. That sounds like my idea of hell. It does sound awful. It does sound I awful. Mean, you know, colonizing Mars is all fine and good until I can only shower for six minutes a week. Let me ask you a quick question about that, though, Hank. How often were they allowed to take nice, comfortable soaking baths? <laughs> because I can uh, handle only six minutes of showering a week, but I'm going to need eight to ten really chest-deep baths. <laughs> the, uh, with very hot water. One of the most fascinating things about this is that uh, one of the crew members, Jocelyn Dunn, when she walked out, she she was a little bit afraid to leave the enclosure without her suit on. Wow! And uh, after after doing it for eight months, she was like, "Can can I really go outside? And is that okay?" Wow! Which is just uh, terrifying. Yeah. I mean, Hank, I don't like to uh, enjoy the news from Mars, but that actually was interesting, primarily because it was the news from Earth. (laughs) Well, I appreciate your appreciation. So that's all the news from the world's greatest fourth-tier football club, and also all the news from the uh, solar system's fourth rock from the sun, uh, which brings us, I'm afraid, Hank, to the end of our podcast for the day. What did we learn? Oh, gosh. I should probably take notes because I always forget what we learned. Well, we learned that the Snorks were the greatest television show of the 1980s. Yes. Um, we learned that that uh, John and I disagree about uh, about the implications of knowledge about the afterlife. And we learned that Hank is very knowledgeable about bees. I wonder what Hank isn't knowledgeable about. It's kind of frustrating sometimes. Well, I stand in front of a camera and am paid to talk about science. So even when I don't know about things, uh, someone has written a script, and then I read the script, and then I do know the thing. And we learned that against all odds, the Orlando Solar Bears are still a thing. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I suggest all Orlandans get your butts to those games. Sounds like a good time. All right, go Solar Bears. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back again next week. You can send your questions to dearhankandjohn at gmail.com. Or visit us online. Uh, I'm at uh, John Green on Twitter, and Hank is at Hank Green. Yes. Thank you to Nick Jenkins for editing this podcast. And as we say in our hometown, don't Don't forget forget to to be be awesome. awesome.